Welcome to Just Tales, stories about what everybody's talking about, and at times, what few are discussing. But you can be assured of one thing, my content and my points of view are my own, and that qualifies it as organic, without the high price of organic. I've been told by some that the tone and the tenor in my voice can put an insomniac into a coma, so if you're one of those listeners that are cued to sleep at the sound of my voice, go ahead and turn down the lights and lay back and enjoy. For all others, pour your favorite drink or smoke your favorite strand, and if you're driving, for God's sake, stay focused. You know, I was pretty convinced on July 28th when I did my last episode that I was going to go into retirement for the third time and and final time in my life. My first retirement after over three decades in the consumer products industry. That's basically an industry where our companies manufactured things, packaged them, and then sold them through outlets like Walmart, Costco, you know, every grocery store, things like that. And I left that under, let's call it, opaque circumstances, which will remain that way. My second career was in the porn industry. It lasted only a short period of time. No, not because I was screwing the help, despite the fact that that was commonplace in that industry. I was set on a mission to professionalize and corporatize this industry. Now, this industry was fraught with criminals, thieves, liars, troublemakers, dope addicts, alcoholics, and sex addicts. I know, much like every industry, right? I was knighted by this private equity firm out of New York City to protect their new investment and build it into something resembling the rest of their portfolio, which were basically cash cows. Well, you know what they say about putting lipstick on a pig, and I was certainly their Revlon. Now fast forward through the pandemic, where podcasting took the world by storm. I jumped in headfirst, and for over two years and 101 episodes, ranted about golf, golfers. And then I'd splash in some other rants about anything else that caught my attention, particularly about like outlier human behavior. I was convinced that there really wasn't anything more to rant about after 101 episodes until I stop it and then right afterwards, Roe v. Wade was overturned. Ukraine was under constant attack by Russia. The LIV golf tour continued to poach popular PGA Tour players. Trump's Palm Beach estate was raided by the FBI to obtain classified secret documents that he had absconded with. In South Carolina, Alex Murdoch was indicted for murder of his wife and son months after being indicted for insurance fraud, amongst other high crimes. And how can we forget about the despicable Alex Jones? A Texas jury decides to penalize Alex Jones a total just under $50 million for his outrageous Sandy Hook denier rants that continually kept stinging the families of the murdered elementary school kids. I mean, Alex Jones is a piece of shit. And to a more positive note, Tom Brady's out of retirement to lead the Bucks again. I mean, you can't make this shit up. Plus, I've had too many golf encounters since I stopped podcasting, and those just can't go unmentioned. So what can you expect from Just Tales? I mean, here's the part where I tell you what I'm going to tell you, then I tell you, then I tell you what I told you. It's classic sales 101 pitch. Just Tales is going to cast a wider net. I'm no Katie Couric, and by the way, I do follow her daily slants every day. One of my golf buddies goes out of his way to drop off two newspapers a day. I know, I'm a curmudgeon. I'm actually reading paper newspaper. One's local, and the other is a respectable journal that breaks shit faster than a bull in a china shop, and that's probably the best metaphor I could, could offer for that. Between these papers, my normal media feeds, I just can't help to comment on the stories that jump off the page. So I'll cover a lot more stuff than just golf, and I'll do it monthly. This will give me more time to catch news flies and produce 
better content with more free time for myself. I mean, come on, I am retired, or at least semi-retired. I mean, that's an ambiguous term, semi-retirement. What does that infer? That somebody's still contributing to society, but they're also contributing to their bank account just a little bit? But don't expect them to reply to you instantly the way they might have when they were working with all these balls in the air. And if they weren't getting back to you quickly then, trust me, it's going to get worse now. Or somebody decides to go into semi-retirement because they think they still have the goods. I mean, they're just going to smell the roses, but they still have the goods. They can still contribute. And by the way, don't expect them to reply to you immediately. Or the most common and classic of now that you've retired from work, you have all this free time to spend with each other. So you better find something else to do so that the two of you are not spending all of your time together. Because my friends, that is a recipe for divorce. And if that's the reason for their semi-retirement, don't expect them to get back to you anytime soon because they're basically in escape mode. So as it pertains to me, I'm out of retirement again and back at it. This month, I'll cover Amazon's decision to own Thursday Night Football exclusively. The continued poaching of PGA Tour players by the LIV Tour and the PGA Tour's response. The cost of free. Is anything really free? The automation of everything and our resistance to change. But first, let's talk about a subject called Objectivity Laundering. Most of you have all heard of money laundering. It's the process of concealing the origin of how you obtain money from illegal sources, from things like drug trafficking, embezzlement, or corruption by converting it into a legitimate source. It's a game of concealing the truth through deceptive practices. All right, so follow my train of thought on this. Imagine that you seek information, facts and truth about what's happening around you. And you do that by going to your trusted news source only to learn that you're being fed opinions disguised as facts. That's objectivity laundering at its best. Now, I'd certainly like to take credit for that term, but I'm borrowing that term from Nicole Hammer a brilliant historian from Columbia University in New York City. It's basically the doctoring of facts to make a journalism appear to be believable. Now, I don't think we could put 100% of the onus on Roger Ailes, though he certainly had a knack for developing a campaign of alternate facts and amassing a media empire to deliver them. And some of those who were well above average looks to keep us focused and seduced. But objectivity laundering happens on both ends of the politically charged media. CNN touting the president's student loan forgiveness program is no more objective than Fox News damning the FBI for the Mar-a-Lago raid, harshly criticizing the FBI. What does it say about all of us, some of us, probably most of us, that were eagerly and willingly led astray and pitted against each other. Now, I've told this story before. When I pledged a fraternity, we were starved of sleep for a week and were made to believe by the end of the week that our, our fraternity charter was going to be revoked because two disgruntled frat bros were taking the charter to the dean of students uh, to, to feed him some dirt about the fraternity. Now... Under normal circumstances, the more streetwise pledges, probably not me at the time, would have looked at each other, laughed and said, hey, nothing makes sense. This is pledge bullshit. But sleep deprivation and duress mess with your head. So while watching the January 6th insurrection, my recollection of my frat hazing came front and center. And ever since that incident, the one in college, 
I'm less likely to take most things at face value, even if they come from, let's say, the highest office. Over time, if you live long enough and you hear enough rhetoric, you develop an active bullshit meter. Whenever I hear the media using superlatives to describe a subject, my bullshit meter starts ticking, like Peter Parker's spider sense. Exaggeration and critical adjectives should be your first indication that a journalist or a talking head is attempting to convince you, not of a fact, but of their opinion. Instead of them just spitting out the facts, they typically start a sentence with, this is the worst, the bloodiest, the greediest. Accusational statements on any side of the news is usually a signal to just skip the article or the show or flip the channel to some streaming service that has a really good show on this week. Do people need to be told how to think? Now, I guess if you're trying to win an election, amassing campaign funds so that you could speak the loudest is a proven success. And so they would say people do need to be told what to think. See, I think everybody needs to find a voice of reason that resonates with their beliefs and values. So for you, if it's Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, Newsy, or Telemundo, try to be open to the fact that not everything you're hearing is free of network opinion. Don't let others make shit up and tell you it's a fact. You'll thank me one day. Amazon Prime taking exclusive ownership of Thursday Night Football. That is a huge media play and a goldmine for the NFL. So how much do you think Amazon paid for exclusivity to own Thursday nights on the NFL? $1.2 billion a year. That's right. $1.2 billion for the exclusive rights to telecast 15 games each season. The contract is annual for 11 years. That's over $13 billion that the NFL makes from Amazon. That's, man, that's a shitload of Kindles, books, and air fryers. You ever write shit on bar napkins? Well, I've done some bar napkin math to figure out how any of this makes sense for Amazon. Some of my best sales agreements have been forged on stained bar napkins. So here are my thoughts. $1.2 $1.2 billion for 15 games breaks down to $80 million per game. It's my understanding that Amazon's trying to get about half of that from advertisers. So that leaves $40 million per week or $600 million annually to make up after they get their advertising dollars. Amazon sells Prime memberships. To consumers and they pay $140 a year for their Prime membership. I don't know what Amazon's going to charge commercially for establishments like bars and restaurants so they could show Thursday night um, NFL. So let's say that commercial contracts and consumer contracts are the same. They're probably not, but just for shit's sake, let's say they are. That means that Amazon would need to sign 4.3 million new users a year to pay for that 40 million dollars that they didn't make in advertising now does that seem unsurmountable well amazon prime has 200 million users and that's up 50 million from 2019 and 100 million from 2018 so in this scenario, 4.3 million year, uh, users a year is only a 2% increase on the existing 
200 million users they currently have. I mean, think about it. In the last two or three years, they have doubled the amount of Amazon Prime users, a 100% increase. And this only requires a 2% increase. And that's just the money that they get from users buying Prime. That doesn't even include the money they make from all the stuff that all these new users are now going to order on Amazon. Yeah, so I think the 4.3 million new users or 2% increase, I think it's achievable. Also, most Gen Xers and Gen Zers are watching football on their phones or their devices. Amazon Prime is an easy app to stream, and it's worldwide. So yeah, I think they're going to do fine. With one small caveat, they've got to keep their announcing booth fresh. They've got to get the best talent, and they've got to refresh that talent as necessary. So yeah, Amazon Prime, smart move. Continued poaching of the PGA Tour players by the Live Golf Tour. So the LIV Tour has been identified as a disruptor in the industry. Disruptors suck if you're not the disruptor or the beneficiary of the new product or service. Now, I'm not going to bore you with the forces that led to certain inventions like the wheel and who lost in the marketplace, but I'll give a few examples. The candle industry, after Edison invented the light bulb. Equestrian sales, after Henry Ford completed his assembly lines and mass-produced cars. The railroad system, after the auto market and the national highway system developed and expanded, and then came the airline industry. Landlines for phone service after cellular technology commercialized. The yellow pages and the white pages after the internet expanded. How about this? VHS to DVD and then DVD to digital. By the way, which killed Blockbuster, but launched Netflix because they knew where the puck was going. In all the evolutionary and revolutionary changes, there were always still supporters and companies that refused to change with the times. I still know people that don't want to give up their Blackberries. I also think classic car owners still want to keep one foot in the past. I'm certainly I'm open to debate on that. This leads me to the live tour. Disruptors are mostly successful when their product or service makes things better, quicker, more convenient, less expensive, more entertaining, more personal, which tends to make markets move and evolve and industries follow the disruptor. The Lyft Tour does some of that, but not most of what disruptors do. The three-day tournament's quicker, and some would argue more entertaining. It's certainly louder. Now, I'm not, I don't know that I'm from that camp of thinking that it's quicker and better. Um, nor am I of the camp of thinking it's really a disruptor. I mean, by luring top PGA and international tour players by offering them significantly more money in exchange for only playing eight events, disruption is basically the live tour poaching the PGA players. And then what happens? In all of this, Jay Monahan has to respond. So in 2023, the tour purses get much bigger. The top players play in a minimum of the same 20 elevated events. And the Corn Ferry and the PGA Tour golfers are now guaranteed a minimum of 500000 a year if their earnings don't get there. And there are a bunch of other monetary awards as well. Some would say that the PGA was holding back on the tour players and only dished out their hidden funds when top players started jumping ship. And my response to that is, hell yeah, with a caveat. 
Up until Phil Mickelson jumped ship and Dustin Johnson and Brooksy and Bryson followed, they opened up a floodgate after that. The PGA, I mean, that was big, but prior to that, the PGA had a model that worked for them. Broadcast contracts with the Golf Channel and major networks, and that is big money. 48 events, most of which had major corporate sponsors that hitched their wagons to the charities, giving the PGA a cover story. Golf industry sponsorship that tied the players and the PGA Tour together so they resembled identical twins, maybe Siamese twins. I used to work with a sales manager that I grew to respect amongst all others, and his motto was change when change is necessary. So I don't fault the PGA from sticking to their model until the competition and their threat was just too big to ignore. You know, I just wonder, prior to the LIV blitz, how the players on the PGA Tour were voicing their concerns about their schedule requirements, zero pay until they earned their way into the weekend, and restrictions to play non-sanctioned PGA events without Jay Monahan's written approval. After hearing Harold Vorner III, or HV3, and his comments, you'd have to believe that issues were being raised for years, but were unaddressed um, to the player's satisfaction. You know, so that leads us to this disruption. What is it going to do to the industry? Um, How much golf does the world and the public have time and a stomach for? If the PGA's elevated 20 events conflict with the Liv's 13 events, Will that dilute the total product? In other words, are people that like to watch professional golf going to go to one or the other, but not both? Most golfers I talk to about this, particularly the boomer generation, are angry with the turncoats who fled the PGA just for the money. I mean, just recently, do you recall when the winning coach in Notre Dame, Brian Kelly, left the storied program for a $95 million contract at LSU. By the way, he lost his first game. So, I mean, if you were a Notre Dame fan, uh, it probably made a difference to you in your life. But if you weren't, it probably didn't. Or how about when LeBron left Cleveland and went to Miami and then went to L.A., each time increasing his footprint on the banking world? I mean, HV3 was honest about his decision, about, hey, he went for the money. And by the way, why does the media have to be hung up on golfers that try and elude the number one reason they changed tours? You know the answer. We all know the answer. Stop asking the questions. I personally don't think the product offered by the Live Tour is a disruptor. 48 golfers on 12 teams. It's a convenient fact. It gives you one more thing to gamble on. The shotgun format is it's quicker to watch, but quite frankly, it's a little confusing when you're watching individual players. And then you also know they're on teams, but they're not playing with any of those players on their teams. Their teams are filtered in all of the other, all of the other foursomes or threesomes. And so, quite frankly, unless they put that up on the screen, you're not sure how every shot from every player is affecting their team. So, to me, it's kind of like watching the Tour de France. Like, each day when they get done with their leg, I don't know who's leading other than some guy in a yellow uh, jersey, let's call it. And you know, sometimes I don't know, like, who's winning the Tour de France. Who are the teams? I have no idea. That's what this reminds me of. I think, you know, from an energy standpoint, they're trying to copy the waste management open with rock music and fan loudness. Quite frankly, the waste management opens on my bucket list. And uh, I'd like to sit at the 16th um, stadium just to kind of see what it's like and hope for a hole in one. But I'd also like to go to the Masters the same year just to see the incredible contrast between between the two different events. So, you know, I don't know if the LIV tour is a disruptor like the wheel, the combustion engine, electric cars, the light bulb, GPS, Wi-Fi, cellular, Bluetooth, and drone military weaponry. But I know this. 
At least 48 new vacation homes, yachts, fishing boats, jets, and sports cars are being purchased as you're listening to this podcast. And more Corn Ferry Tour players are smiling from ear to ear. So it's good for somebody. The cost of free. Is anything really free? Ah, the sweet sound of the word free. It is a marketer's DEFCOM 2 strategy when all else fails. Free with purchase. Buy one, get one free. Free to enter. Complimentary when you blah, blah, blah. The illusion of free is that you can get something without having to do something. Or if you just do this thing, you get this other thing without having to do what you normally would do to get that other thing. It's intoxicating. Nothing tastes or feels as good as free. Mostly because your standards drop when it's not coming out of your pocket. How many times do you get a free drink or a free meal and you just don't complain because you don't want to look a gift horse in the mouth? I used to make a cup of tea for Tracy every morning, and she would tell me that that cup of tea tasted better than her own tea, like better than any other tea she ever had. And what she really meant was that for once, she didn't have to do things for others or for herself, so the tea was basically energy-free. I'm certain that the tea she made for herself was just as good or even better, but mine was free of bother to her. Free in his illusion that intoxifies all of us. But as I've learned over time and after years of interactions, free comes at a cost. Let me just share two examples to illustrate my point. First of all, have you ever gone to Costco to shop? And have you ever gone to Costco to graze when they have all of those free samples? And trust me, you don't want to do it while you're hungry because what I do is if I'm grazing when I'm hungry, I then sometimes feel obligated if any one of those samples tastes remotely edible. But even more so, even if I don't buy those samples that I am tasting for free, I'm just spending more time in the warehouse, in the shopping experience. And the more time that I spend in a Costco in the warehouse, the more likely my ticket is going to be well over $100. So in that situation, free comes at a cost. It's just hidden. Another example, I joined this company in 2009, located in Princeton, New Jersey. You've likely heard of the Ivy League University that's housed in Princeton. It's called Princeton University. The small village of Princeton was home of the university as well as it was a bedroom community to several pharma companies and was a one-hour commute from New York City and also to Philadelphia. And because of that, the village had to have good restaurants and good breakfast establishments that catered to both the college crowd as well as the New York and Philadelphia commuters. Bagel shops were just one of the critical necessities of the town. So big that when I got to this company in Princeton, the first day on the job, they told me about Bagel Day. I'm like, what? All five departments that our company housed in that building all had their own proprietary Friday Bagel Day. Each department had their own rules for um, how you bought the bagels, where you could buy the bagels, what types of bagels, uh, what flavors of bagels, what kind of cream cheese, what kinds of spreads. I mean, it really was insane. So I worked for the sales department at the time, and they actually had a PowerPoint slide that was distributed to all employees 
to assure compliance, particularly new employees that came in the building. There was actually an electronic sign-up sheet. We had over 50 on our staff. So if you signed up for one of the 52 weeks, once you signed up, you own that week. And basically every other week of the year, you got free bagels. The department depended on a weekly supply of fresh bagels. So if you signed up, you started sweating it out, even if it was 40 weeks away. Most everyone in the sales department was made aware unofficially and never in writing that the weekly bagel purchase, not to exceed a certain amount, could be expensed. So for the purpose of this story, the bagels were free for everyone. But here's the rub. If you chose a non-standardized bagel store and a non-sanctioned bagel store, you would be castigated for the remainder of the time that you worked there. And I'm not kidding. When I first arrived on the scene, my new staff sat me down and shared the story of Gino Pasquale, who brought in Lenders Bagels from, from an Acme grocery store that he lived by. We didn't have any toasters in the office, and Gino's Bagels were institutional and stale. So the office staff was relentless and Gino finally took a job in the field with sales. Some would say it's because of the bagel incident. I would say it could be true. So when it was my week, I planned my Friday morning trip weeks in advance. Number one, if I took a business trip that week, I made sure I was back in town on Wednesday, just in case there were flight issues something went wrong, I'd be back on Thursday in time to buy the bagels and bring them in. Number two is I lived in a town called Doylestown, an hour from Princeton, and they had a a sanctioned bagel shop called the Doylestown Bagel Shop. And I went in there and I talked to the owner. I lived in town like blocks from there and I'd see him all the time. It was my daughter's favorite bagel place too. So we knew them. And I went in and I said, listen, on Friday, I need these certain types of bagels cut in half and, you know, different, a mix of everything, onion, salt, wheat, and plain. And I need two tubs of cream cheese, one regular and one with chives. So, and the guy said, hey, no problem. We get requests like this all the time. I'm thinking not like our, not like our company. So the night before, I actually didn't sleep well. Because the alarm, I just, I wanted to make sure I beat the alarm. I just wanted to make sure I did not screw this up. Could you imagine that? So I get to the bagel shop at 6.30, just as planned. The bagels were already there, cut the right amount. And so now I get in my car and I have what would normally be a one hour commute. It was only like 35 or 40 miles, but it was two lane roads, 30 to 40 miles an hour. And I'm hoping not to get caught behind a school bus, a slow truck, or some morning commuter that likes texting. It just so happens to be, didn't have any problems. I arrive at the office at 7.30 and a few of the early risers were already in the pantry by the coffee pot looking at the electronic sheet, um, That was printed out, by the way, and posted in the pantry to see who's got bagel day. So I walk in, I make the drop. It's 7.30 in the morning, right? What are these people doing? So I make the bagel drop without any hiccups. And then I take one for myself. I put cream cheese on it. I get a cup of coffee. I walk to my office. I get behind my office door. I close it. And I take a deep breath because I knew 11 months, 30 days, and 12 hours in the future, I'm going to have to do this again. In this case, the cost of free was my reputation and my personal stock price in the organization. Now, it just so happened that every project at this company resembled Bagel Day. The weight and the importance of every project was just like Bagel Day, and I should have guessed that the first day on the job. But I love bagels, and I was thinking, how bad can this be, right? But the bagel protocol is basically the protocol for how they did things in that organization. In this case, the cost of free, for me, was agita.
Finding the informal leader. There's always an informal leader as long as there are two or more people. In most all groups of two or more, an informal leader will always surface when a call to action is necessary. I only feel compelled to bring this up because I faced it every weekend for the past month and a half. In July, a golf associate of mine, I'll call him JR, shared a new venture that he recently got involved in. When he finished his classic elevator speech about his excitement in this, in working with this charity to help vets and first responders with PTSD, I just responded, hey, JR, how can I help? Early in my podcast uh, life cycle, I interviewed this guy, Dan, who runs VetFit, dedicates his life to helping vets avoid suicide. His story moved me so much that we developed four episodes, and every time he ran his annual golf outing for vets, I made sure I was there to help. So I'm talking to JR on a Thursday and then decide to shadow him on a Friday and then committed to work with him starting that weekend and haven't stopped yet. The Hero Golf Tour is a free golf tour for vets and first responders. It started in San Diego four years ago and it's been growing exponentially across the southern United States, kind of like the horseshoe of the United States. It's new in Charleston. So all the work we're doing now is raising funds to operate the Hero Golf Tour so that it's free for participants and it's a profit center for the golf courses. That means that funds that we raise go to buy tee times so that these uh, vets and first responders can play free. And it's also for awards. So how do I raise funds, you might ask? Currently at five premier semi-private golf courses in the low country, we're running a contest for all participating golfers that want to help the cause with the hope of themselves winning as much as a thousand dollars along the way. Here's how it works. We set up shop at these postcard worthy par threes at each of the golf courses. The distance from the tee box to the front of the green is a minimum of 165 yards. And typically, the backs of those greens could be as deep as 45 yards. For a one-time donation of $25 per man per ball, two golfers, if they land their balls on the green, can win $100. Three golfers, $375. And if all four could land their tee shots on the green, they could win $1,000. All they have to do is hit their balls and hold the green. Now, first, a lot of the first-time participants ask me, like, explain hold the green. Hold the green means that your tee shot on a par three has to come to rest on the green surface. It's not a hole-in-one contest. It's not a closest-to-the-pin contest. Most greens that I work with are between 45 and 50 yards deep, and 35 to 50 yards wide. That, that is a huge surface area. It's like 1,600 square yards. It's a huge target. So why am I telling you this? When a foursome rides up to the tee box where I'm running hero days, um, they are passing several flags and posters that I leave out there that alert them about that there's something going on here at this hole, something different. Now, quite frankly, as they're driving up, many of them are oblivious to the signs um, and this 10 by 10 cabana that I'm standing under. That's because they're on their phones or discussing who shot what on the last hole, or they're so into their game that, you know, the last thing they want is a distraction. They're trying to beat their buddies and win some money. So I have to break through their golf brains to um, basically explain to them that there's a charity with opportunities for them to make money in the pro shop. So they get to hit balls that they were going to hit anyway. It's a minor donation, and they get a chance to walk out of the pro shop with free stuff. Another example of the cost of free. 
Now, quite frankly, I might be the last thing that most of them want to encounter while taking a break from life to kick it with their buddies on a golf course, maybe have a few drinks, maybe maybe have the best shot of their life or the best score on a hole or even sometimes a score of a lifetime. And so the last thing that they're looking for is a distraction. So quite often, after I give them my pitch, it goes silent. Now, once that happens, I wait for the informal leader. It could take seconds or it could take minutes, but in every group, someone speaks up and starts the ball rolling. And I got to tell you, most of the time, it's positive. I mean, here is the social experiment that I find fascinating. Once the informal leader speaks up and takes an opinion, at least one more golfer or all four also say, okay, I'm in. And that's typically what the leader says. The leader's going to say like, hey guys, this is a great thing. I'm in. And then, you know, when, when he starts saying that or she starts saying that, it's rare that golfers say, no, I don't want to do it. I, you know, I'm scared. I don't want to, you know, I'll never get it there. There's water, there, all that stuff. Now, I've done at least eight hero days at three different golf courses and witnessed over 700 golfers react to the pitch. Most weekend golfers struggle with golf confidence. Now, facing 165-yard over water, over bunkers to maybe a pin that's 180 yards away can bring most golfers to their knees. And so the prospect of paying $25 to land a ball on a green, knowing that your buddies are counting on you for their payday is unnerving. That's where I see the informal leader cutting through all of the fear and all of the odds of getting in. And usually with statements like, hey, it's for a great cause and we have a chance to win money. Let's do it. That's the mindset of a leader and a good human. He'll usually say something like, hey, guys, we can help and maybe we could win something. What's also cool about this contest is that it's a one-time donation and any participant that sees Hero Days at any course in the United States, particularly here in the Low Country, they get to play that game to win money again for free. And that's to win money in the pro shop. Now, I have winners every weekend, and I have repeat winners. And all of that is thanks to the informal leaders. And to those informal leaders, thanks for the donation, and thanks for teaching me how to be a better human. Automation and our resistance to change. Why him? In a few months, he creates a revolutionary type of microprocessor. Go on. Then what? In three years, Cyberden will become the largest supplier of military computer systems. All stealth bombers are upgraded with Cyberden computers becoming fully unmanned. Afterwards, they fly with a perfect operational record. The Skynet funding bill is passed. The system goes online on August 4th, 1997. Human decisions are removed from strategic defense. Skynet begins to learn at a geometric rate. It becomes self-aware at 2.14 a.m. Eastern Time, August 29th. In a panic, they try to pull the plug. Skynet fights back. Yes. It launches its missiles against the targets in Russia. Why attack Russia? Aren't they friends now? Because Skynet knows that the Russian counterattack will eliminate its enemies over here. Jesus. Yeah, I think once you see the Terminator trilogy... You can't unsee it. Humans develop technology that eventually becomes our demise. I mean, many of yesterday's jobs are done cheaper and more efficient with robotics and automation. We're now sending a drone to moon, which risks less human life and has more staying power. Drones will be delivering our packages soon and fighting our wars. Restaurants are experimenting with bots for reservations. Hotels are moving towards auto check-in, eliminating entirely the front desk clerk and making your trip more seamless. My generation of boomers and many Gen Xers are going to resist because the startup glitches of all of this technology reminds us of how the way we used to do it worked just fine. 
You know, it's easy to forget all the times we messed up along the way because we hired wrong. We trained wrong. We had horrible work cultures or just had too many people that stopped giving a shit along the way. Has anyone noticed that since the worldwide shutdown from the pandemic, our kids' test scores are plummeting and the A-team from food and bev and retail have virtually disappeared, leaving us with maybe the B and C teams of who gives a shit attitudes. I mean, it's even more rational to speed up the automation process when you look at it that way. I'm a big fan of letting machines do what they can do better, faster, and more efficient than complacent workers. Those that want to work will always find a way and a place for their skills. And those who don't will become the problem of our political administrations. I think we know what that looks like. All right, we might as well end Just Tales with a short golf story. Um, And it's really more of a a conundrum these days. And that is flag stick in or flag stick out. The scientists have spoken. that there are 24 rules of golf with 96 sub-rules attached to the original 26 rules. In 2019, rule 13.2 pertaining to the flagstick was amended to allow golfers to leave the flagstick in when their ball had come to rest on the green right before they putted. The governing body of the RNA and the USGA believed that this new rule would add to speed of play. Ha! (laughs) I don't think so. But ironically, during the pandemic, starting in March of 2020, most all golf courses restricted players to pull the flag in fear of COVID being transmitted through human touch of the flag stick and for roaming fingers inside the hole when golfers were retrieving their hold putts. That meant that the golfing public were forced to putt with a flag in, which became like a litmus test for the future. Which do you prefer and which situation would increase your odds of holding a putt? Pin in or pin out? Other than your own personal experiences, two separate groups approached the problem slash solution as a scientific experiment. groups, Golf Digest and MyGolfSpy.com. Both companies use the same type of ball ramps called stint meters that measure how far a ball rolls on a green when dropped from three feet. They also tested it on different types of flag sticks, rigid and stiff flags, because each one absorbs and deflects energy from a ball in motion differently. Well, of course, to do the test right, Number one, your putt has to get there. Do you know most putts are short? You know, I mean, really, when you think about flag in or flag out, the answer is going to be whichever one helps you get the ball to the hole. But typically, to do the test right, and both of these groups did it the same way. They ran balls first uh, at a speed where the ball would go one and a half feet past, three feet, six feet, and nine feet. Okay, and then they aimed their stint meters directly at the hole or a little angle so it was touching the hole. And what they found was this. Of course, short putts don't go in, but also the ones that would typically roll nine feet past the pin, they don't go in either, whether there's a flag stick of either type of stiffness or no flag stick. The velocity of the ball is just too great. And even a lot of the six foot putts wouldn't go in as well. So now it comes down to getting the speed right. Which of those is going to make your ball stick in the hole uh, more times? Golf Digest. 
99.9% of all balls go in when the flag is out. And that is, of course, at velocities where the ball wouldn't go more than three feet past the hole. 99.9 pin out. MyGolfSpy.com. 90% of the time, the ball stays in the hole if the pin is in. Say what? So there you have it. Golf Digest, our historically most trusted golf source, concluded that 99.9% of the putts stay in the hole if the pin is out. My Golf Spy, the new and independent source for equipment testing, concludes that over 90% of the putts stay in when the pin is left in, which made me feel like it's the Republicans and the Democrats again, bifurcation all over again. How can two scientific studies using similar instruments be so diametrically opposed? And the answer is, I have no freaking idea. The results actually make me feel better because there are times when my brain wants to see the pen and other times it wants to see the white paint inside the hole. It just makes the hole look bigger. There are times when I feel like the pin is a backstop or magnet, and other times it's like Dikembe Matumbo. No, 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 no. Not in my house. So the fact that the results of the studies are completely opposite gives me the permission mentally to ask for the pin in or out, depending on how I feel at the moment. I don't want to be forced to declare that I'm a Republican if I feel like the candidate representing my district my state, or my country don't represent my viewpoints. So the flagsticks are like politicians. I might want them in or I might want them out depending on circumstances. But trust me, that point of view will frustrate my playing partners to no end. Hey, take it out. Could you leave it in? Hey, can you tend it? My strategy won't speed up the game of golf, but if you've been playing some of the courses I play, That possible additional 15 seconds of pin placement will not make the two foursomes in front of me disappear when I get to the next tee box. So, pin in or pin out, you decide. And you don't have to make the call before you start playing the game. You can decide every hole. That's my two cents. hope you enjoyed the first episode of Just Tales. I'm your host, Rich Easton, telling tales from beautiful Charleston, South Carolina. Talk to you soon.